think when one faces the truth about communism, one comes to see not the limits of a well-constituted political democracy, but the limits of a kind of enlightenment ideology that exaggerates the capacity of human beings to uh, conquer nature and conquer human nature. That voice you just heard was Daniel J. Mahoney, professor at Assumption College. He's an expert on Solzhenitsyn revolution and ideology, and he's going to be talking with Acton Director of Communications John Caritas today. They'll be talking about the 100th anniversary of a very significant event, the Bolshevik Revolution. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is Mark Vandermoss, pleased to be your host here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Great show today. Uh, as I said, Daniel Mahoney will be here with us talking about the Bolshevik Revolution, and then we'll follow that up with an upstream segment. Bruce Edward Walker talking with Daniel Menjivar on the movie Blade Runner 2049. That's a big one. Just came out. Uh, they'll be giving us their thoughts uh, and review of that one. And, of course, uh, we want to remind you before we get into our interviews, there is still time to register for our Education and Freedom Conference. We'll be holding that this week, Thursday, October 19th, 2017, at the Acton Institute's headquarters right in downtown Grand Rapids in our beautiful Mark Murray Auditorium. Head on over to acton.org events to register for that one. And uh, join us on Thursday if you've got some time to come out and talk about what freedom can do for education. So lots of good stuff today. Let's uh, not waste any more time and get over to our interviews here on Radio Free Acton. Macbeth's self-justifications were feeble, and his conscience devoured him. Yes, even Iago was a little lamb, too. The imagination and the spiritual strength of Shakespeare's villains stopped short at a dozen corpses, because they had no ideology. Ideology, that is what gives villainy its long-sought justification and gives the villain the necessary steadfastness and determination. Thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience a villainy on a scale calculated in the millions. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago. Welcome. My name is John Caritas. I'm the Director of Communications at the Acton Institute. And my guest today on Radio Free Acton is Professor Daniel J. Mahoney of Assumption College in Worcester, Mass. We're talking on Monday, October 16th. Uh, Professor Mahoney is an expert on Solzhenitsyn. He is also an expert on ideology and revolution, so he's uh, the perfect person to talk to this October as we mark the 100th anniversary of the revolution. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, those words I read from Solzhenitsyn were from a... An article you published on Vogelin View earlier this year titled Judging Communism and All Its Works, Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago Reconsidered. Let's start by talking a little bit about Solzhenitsyn and why it's so important to recover his view of what happened in the Soviet Union and his understanding of what communism wrought in this world. Well, you know, I say in that article that 
Solzhenitsyn was the great scourge of ideological despotism in the 20th century. Um, it's very difficult after spending time with Solzhenitsyn's works and the Gulag Archipelago in particular to see um, communism simply as a well-intentioned project that some, somehow went awry because of specifically Russian circumstances or mistakes that were made by particular leaders like Stalin. I think that quote is particularly powerful because it highlights what we could call the ideological justification of tyranny and terror. That uh, Sol Solzhenitsyn makes very clear that it takes something like um, ideological justification, the argument that killing, purging Russia of all the harmful insects, as Lenin put it in a January 1918 essay called How to Organize the Competition, that somehow this is the necessary precondition for radically transforming um, human nature and society, and that at the end of that uh, violent transformation will be an unprecedented emancipation and liberation of the human race. And uh, Solzhenitsyn is also very astute in seeing that, um, as he puts it, that the drama of good and evil lies in every human heart. So the effort to lo localize evil in a suspect group or race, the kulaks, the merchants, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, the Christians, etc., as the Bolsheviks did, or the Jews as the Nazis did, that this uh, process of ideological culpability simply um, introduces unprecedented tyranny and evil in the world. But, of course, it doesn't abolish evil. It simply amplifies it. And um, so I think, uh, I think Solzhenitsyn's work really shows the radical corruption that's inherent in every ideological effort to, to do the impossible, to try to uh, radically transform human nature. And uh, that, that last part of that quote makes very clear that um, it's ideology that me, ideology is responsible for the fact that, and, and by the way, the numbers vary, but uh, 20 to 35 million people perished in the Soviet Union between 1918 and 1956 as a result of deliberate government repression perhaps 65 million under Mao Zedong in China between 1949 and 1976. So uh, that amplification of tyranny, that principled ideological justification of violence is at the heart and soul of communist totalitarianism. Well, uh, Solzhenitsyn also brings, uh, his fundamental critique is based on a moral view and also a theological view, is it not? How he understands well, what this... I think this... that's right, and, that, and that's what I meant when, I would say a philosophical and theological view. You know, Solzhenitsyn returned to the orthodox faith of his fathers when he was in the camp. He had uh, been raised as a Christian, repudiate that, repudiated that faith in his Christian years, but I think his own experience of the camps where he learned that uh, the, the line dividing good and evil lay in every human heart and not between nations and classes and parties and regimes, as, as the uh, Bolsheviks insisted. 
that led him, I think, to see the fundamental truth of the Christian proposition, the, the idea that each of us has to battle with evil in the human heart, even though there's no hope of simply uh, eliminating evil from the human condition. And of course, Solzhenitsyn, in a beautiful chapter in the Gulag called, called The Ascent, talks about his own return to faith. Um, he had repudiated the faith of his fathers, but he came to see, I think he came to, he, he experienced something like redemptive suffering in the camps, and he came to see that the, the Christian understanding of the human person was the most complete and truthful account available. Well, as you point out in this essay, um, ultimately a victory was achieved. Uh, you write, the Gulag Archipelago is an experiment in artistic literary investigation in Solzhenitsyn's description of it, in no small part because of its power to illustrate the sparks of the spirit that miraculously survived the assaults of ideology. Human nature is more powerful than ideology. God's grace is more powerful than imperfect human nature. Yeah, you know, uh, one, one uh, point I insistently make in this essay is that there's not a moment, uh, or the slightest element of nihilism and despair in Solzhenitsyn's work, that the Gulag Archipelago is finally an account of hope and catharsis, despite the terrible, the chronicles of of suffering and repression and uh, the comprehensive indictment of totalitarianism. In the end, Solzhenitsyn's, uh, Solzhenitsyn's book is a tribute to the sparks of the spirit. It is a tribute. He, he gives a human face, a human countenance to all those who suffer. He shows the power uh, of both resistance to evil, but also the elevation the ascent, the spiritual ascent that's possible for those who, like Solzhenitsyn, decided not to survive at any cost in the camps. So uh, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the Gulag Archipelago. If one reads it sort of in a cursory manner, just reading 50 or 100 pages, a lot of people you know, close, close its uh, cover and say this is all too depressing. But if you read it all the way through and... Uh, and, and we have the help of uh, the wonderful uh, abridgment that Edward Erickson prepared uh, with the help of Solzhenitsyn in the mid-1980s. It's possible, I think, to confront that larger message of hope and catharsis, to see that with God's grace, uh, human nature can be vindicated, that ultimately ideology is powerless to overcome and undermine the integrity of the human soul. And I think that paradox is quite striking, that this is, in some sense, um, a journey into hell, but it's also a journey that uh, culminates in the, uh, in the, in the uh, vindication of the human spirit, the vindication of human nature, and a kind of invitation to uh, accept God's creation and grace. Uh, I would uh, also recommend to our listeners that if they are— Looking for a good place to get into Solzhenitsyn, a place to start, the Solzhenitsyn reader that you edited with Ed Erickson would be an outstanding place to start. We'll link we'll link that book also in the show and notes. And let me add that uh, the Solzhenitsyn reader, it's about 700 pages, a little bit shy of 700 pages, but as Stefan Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn's son, commented to me, it contains excerpts 
or the complete text of something like 80% of Solzhenitsyn's work. So it's extremely comprehensive. It has the most ample and comprehensive uh, collection of his great speeches and lectures. And it also includes about 25 to 30% material that never before appeared in English. So uh, I must say I've written many books, uh, several on Solzhenitsyn, but the Solzhenitsyn Reader is the volume that I'm most proud of being associated with, you know, because I think it makes Solzhenitsyn available to an Anglophone audience like no other volume. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Anyone who's interested in revolution or the ideology should have this book on their shelf. So, Daniel, how is Russia commemorating and recovering the work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn today? Well, uh, Solzhenitsyn's work is taught in Russian high schools. Uh, three of his great works are required reading. Um, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, the first famous novella about the Gulag, his beautiful and spiritually sensitive short story, Matriana's Home, and lastly, a 510-page abridgment of the Gulag Archipelago prepared at Solzhenitsyn's request by his wife Natalia, finished in 2010, and that is required reading in literature and some history courses in Russian high schools. So um, uh, also a 30-volume collected works of Solzhenitsyn is in the process of being published. And next year, uh, December 11, 2018, I'll be going to Moscow for a centennial conference to honor Solzhenitsyn on the 100th anniversary of his birth. So contrary, I think, to a certain impression in the West, Solzhenitsyn's voice is heard in Russia It's a major part of the conversation, and I think Solzhenitsyn's presence guarantees that any effort to simply repress the memory of communist totalitarianism will fail. Also, I should add that there's a wall of grief, a big wall being dedicated in Moscow on October 30th on the 100th anniversary of the revolution to the victims of communism. This has wide support from the civil, civil society, including the Solzhenitsyn's, but it also receives some government funding. So um, it is true the present regime sort of goes back and forth about how honest and open they want to be about the communist past. But the fact that they've encouraged the serious study and discussion of Solzhenitsyn's work is, a, is at least, I think, a, a sign of hope. It is. And uh, too bad American students don't have some of those Solzhenitsyn works on their required reading list as well. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I just saw a poll. 83% of British high school students had never heard the name Solzhenitsyn. Wow. Very discouraging. <laughs> it's, there's a strange thing going on here. Uh, the left is also marking the revolution, but from a very different point of view, there seems to be this persistent romanticizing of communism and communists. Uh, I would only point to uh, what the New York Times is doing on their Red Century uh, project. Today there's a very uh, positive article about John Reed, the journalist who chronicled a lot of what went on in the Russian Revolution. You might remember Reed from uh, Warren Beatty's uh, hagiographic 1980s film called Reds, which was sort of like a, a romance. Um, yeah, it's a movie I can't stomach. <laughs> I know. Romance meets uh, Bolshevism, 
is what it uh, probably the formula if you want to do the elevator that's pitch. That's right. That's right. Uh, he was uh, Beatty was also the one to describe Trotsky, I think, as a romantic figure. So today they have a, a article on uh, Reed. Uh, the articles they've been publishing almost look like uh, they belong in the lifestyle section. Earlier this year, they published in April uh, an article by Vivian Gornick titled "When Communism Inspired Americans." So. Dan, what are we not getting here? What is it about the left's persistent refusal to look at the historical record, the terror, the crimes, the bodies piled up? What's going on here? Have we learned nothing? I I think parts of the left who remain committed to a kind of historical progressivism, to at least the aspiration to fundamentally transform human nature and society, who um, want to believe. Harry Hopkins, uh, FDR's advisor, chief advisor in the 1930s and 40s, once called communism the New Deal in a hurry. And uh, by the way, I'm not sure that was FDR's view, but it was certainly the view of many liberals and progressives in the United States and the West. And uh, I think communism is very difficult for the left to come to terms with, as this this really execrable New York Times series uh, illustrates, because um, to face the truth about communism is finally to confront the limits of an Enlightenment worldview, the idea that material and technical and progress is coextensive with spiritual and moral progress, the idea that human beings can be transformed without God's grace, the idea that um, a kind of technique of power and revolution can fundamentally alter the human condition. I think when one faces the truth about communism, one comes to see not the limits of a well-constituted political democracy, but the limits of a kind of enlightenment ideology that exaggerates the capacity of human beings to uh, conquer nature and conquer human nature. So in that sense, I think the, 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 uh, the democratic left holds on to the romance of revolution. They'd like to believe, for a long time, I think the standard version of this was that um, uh, Stalin was a kind of, and Stalinism was an aberration that had betrayed the original promise of 1917. So I think it's much harder after Solzhenitsyn and Applebaum and Conquest and others to make the argument that Lenin was good and Stalin was bad. I think that view has been exploded. And really, how, popular, how wherever this ideology has, uh, wherever, whenever anyone has made an effort to implement this ideology in a concrete political program, it seems to have gone off the rails. Well, you know, the late Martin Malia, great Russianist who uh, is author of a superb book called The Soviet Tragedy, he liked to say, it became very common in the 60s and 70s for people to say communism was polycentric. You know, Chinese communism and Cambodian communism and Vietnamese and Korean communism were different than Soviet communism. And the problem was, as Malia pointed out, that Everywhere, as he put it, from Petrograd to the South China Sea, communism had the same genetic code, uh, the same effort to purge all the harmful insects from uh, the, the, their respective countries, 
the same uh, uh, elimination of real and imagined enemies of the people, the same systematic war on religion, Radio uh, 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 Tirana in Albania in 1967 claimed that they alone had completely extirpated religion from uh, from Albania. And in fact, in Albania, it was a capital crime to baptize a child. But in fact, uh, you know, uh, as Maya says, from Petrograd to the South China Seas, the collectivization of agriculture, the persecution of enemies, the war against religion, uh, all took a relatively identical form. And so uh, the problem is inherent in the ideological project itself. Um, the, the goal is impossible. The means are inhuman, even demonic. And the result of every effort to apply maximalist socialism, and that means the abolition of property, the four abolitions of the second part of the Communist Manifesto, the abolition of private property, the abolition of religion, the abolition of the family, the abolition of nations. And, uh, and I think if one looks seriously at the enterprise or project itself, I think it's apparent that any effort to instantiate or embody that project at the level of practice is going to end up with an unprecedented form of tyranny and terror. And uh, by the way, there are many honest members of the left, the Democratic left, who long ago recognized these truths about George Orwell, most famously, who was a man of the left, was an indefatigable critic of totalitarianism. But many Many people on the left, I think, really refuse to acknowledge the problem is not this leader here, that leader here, this historical experience versus that historical experience. It's, as I said, the ideological enterprise itself. Yeah, and thank you for reminding us of Orwell. Uh, his work, 1984, is a work of true genius, and that should be on our bookshelf as well. Absolutely. And contrary to Walter Cronkite's introduction from the 1980s, the book wasn't a uh, primarily about Richard Nixon and Watergate. <laughs> it, 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 it's a deeply discerning uh, critique of the communist lie and the efforts, that, you know, two plus two equals five, the efforts to transform human nature. Uh, Orwell's original title for 1984 was The Last Man in Europe, Winston Smith. Mm -hmm. You know that this yeah, was uh, yeah, yeah. Orwell appreciated that communism entailed a systematic war against human nature. And his conscience would allow him to look at it in, in no other way. Dan, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you for coming on Radio Free Acton. Uh, to our listeners, uh, we will be publishing links to some of the articles and books we talked about today. So be sure to check that out. Dan, thank you. John, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Same here. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and I'm here in the studio with Paul Bonicelli, Director of Programs and Education for the Acton Institute. And I understand that there is a new conference coming around the corner. Paul, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I would be glad to. It's in October, October 19, and uh, we're going to focus on education. Uh, the title of the conference is Education and Freedom, and our goal is to look at Acton's principles of personal liberty, 
uh, and free markets and apply that to some of the big questions about education reform that uh, the country faces today. Um, who do you think should attend this event? I think this is a conference that really would interest um, teachers. It would interest administrators of schools, both uh, higher ed level as well as K-12. Uh, also families, homeschoolers, private school, classical school, Catholic schools, anybody that uh, is doing education as a profession or a consumer at a consumer of it, if you will, but also people in the public policy arena, the business arena. This this affects every bit of our uh, national life, and so it would be interesting to anyone. Thank you, Paul. For our um, listeners, how can they register for this event? They can go to acton.org, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, and find our events tab and uh, register that way. All right. Thank you very much, Paul. My pleasure. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we're going to be talking about the new film Blade Runner 2049, which is not doing terribly well at the box office, and we'll discuss that uh, a little bit later. But uh, my guest today is producer Daniel Menjavar, and we're he's not as hot on the movie as I am, and so why don't, why don't you lead in? Tell us a little bit about the movie, uh, the uh, individuals who made it. Uh, the director is uh, Denis Villeneuve, I believe is how it's pronounced, uh, a French-Canadian director. So uh, this is a sequel to the 1982 classic, which uh, wasn't a classic when it came out, but uh, eventually... Uh, picked up word of mouth through the years and different versions, the director's cut and what have you. So go ahead, Daniel, tell us a little bit more about the film. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is Blade Runner 2049, uh, a project long in the making. Ridley Scott uh, produced, but you're right, uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, directed. Uh, I think he did Arrival, was that? He did that one before, I think, yes. right? Okay, that's what I thought. Yes, yes, and he did Sicario. Sicario, thank you. And, that's what, uh, yeah. Right, um, and Prisoners. Which I have not seen. Um, yeah, and it stars. I, I I saw it and I wouldn't recommend it. I, I thought it was just way too long and uh, badly in need of editing and uh, a story. I I I, got, I understand that, and you know I think that might be that might be a theme uh, with maybe some of his movies. Uh, I'm going to steal a joke here, but this was Blade Runner 2049 minutes too long. Um, yeah. Oh this, my! <laughs> this was just just a slog, Bruce. Um, so certainly did not need to be that, that many minutes long two, I think two hours and 45 is I think where it, where it ends up. Um, but, uh, that's, it stars Ryan Gosling, uh, America's sweetheart, uh, as well as Harrison Ford comes in, uh, that's in the trailers. Um, as also with, uh, Jared Leto, um, as, uh, as one of the main villains in the, in the story, um, sort of takes place, uh, 20 odd years after the events of the first Blade Runner. Uh, you come back into this world, uh, and you get to find out a new mystery. So without without spoiling anything, so right. Well, I, what what I like about uh, the, this film, uh, as with the original, is that they're 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 pretty true to the source material. The the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" by Philip K. Dick, and uh, I'm not sure whether you're a, a science fiction uh, buff, but uh, this is something I read way back in the day and uh, enjoyed it immensely as I, as I did most of the, the Philip K. Dick books that I've read. But uh, it, what he does is he 
as, as with a, a lot of very good science fiction, it uh, cribs from other genres, and uh, such as you know Star Trek being wagon train to the stars. This is a film that takes uh, the film noir detective, the, the Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe character, the, the Sam Spade character from uh, Dashiell Hammett, and kind of transposes them into a futuristic dystopia. And uh, I, I think, to me, that it, it's, it's a fascinating conceit. And I, I, I love how it played off in the first film, because when I, when I saw the first movie, when it was, I'm a lot older than you, uh, very, uh, back in 82, I thought it was just a fantastic film. And then when I saw the director's cut without the narration, the voiceover by Harrison Ford, I, I loved it even more. So th- th- this was, uh, I, I had a lot of emotional investment walking in, and I think two hours and 45 minutes is just the right length. And I, I could have sat through another 15 minutes to a half an hour before uh, going out to get more popcorn. So it, uh, I, I, I thought it dealt with some really, really heavy themes. And uh, you, you, you covered a lot of the cast, but uh, you left out what I thought was one of the most amazing parts of the film was that uh, there are great female performances in the film oh yeah most and and you know you have robin wright who who plays uh, a very nasty character lieutenant joshi uh and the the beautiful anna de army as joy and sylvia hoax or hoax as love so you have joy and love as two characters in the film and i i, I found uh both of them to be great character foils for each other. And uh, uh, I, I can't say enough about the set design that uh, alludes to the, the, the first film, as well as, you know, all the way back to Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And uh, there's one sequence where it's taken directly from uh, M.C. Escher, some of his etching that uh, uh, where you kind of have the uh, the visual Mobius strip of the individuals walking through the stairs in a circular fashion and uh, never arriving at their destination, which is a a wonderful conceit for a film. I mean, it goes back to what Salvador Dali did in Spellbound in the Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah, I will say, if anything, to give credit where credit is due. Um, I did love the visuals and sort of the sound sound design of this movie. Like this movie made you feel um, sort of the, the technology, right? Uh, with the sort of use of static, uh, its use of some noise in order to make music as well. Um, sort of these unsettling tones and beats uh, that the yeah the movie would use. I thought that was that was gorgeous and like the visuals, uh, the cityscape. We got we got uh, they had the little homages to the original. Uh, Blade Runner companies that were in there, little Easter eggs there. But uh, it was just, uh, I will say, it was an absolutely gorgeous movie. Um, going back to Los Angeles there, future future Los Angeles, uh, and sort of seeing it, tw- yeah, 20 years later uh, in a different world. I, de- I definitely enjoyed watching this movie. Yeah, and the music, the, the soundtrack, as you said, is by Hans Zimmer, and he actually takes some pieces from uh, Peter and the Wolf, as well as the original soundtrack by Ben Jealous, the uh, the German composer and pop artist. So l- let's talk a little bit about the story. Um, why would this 
be of interest to uh, the acting audience. And we have to be careful not to present spoilers because, like I said, this movie is not doing terribly well at the box office. It cost more than $150 million to make. Yeah, I mean, the original Blade Runner didn't do that well either, right? Like, so it's just sort of this, this pattern that it already set. Um, but regardless, I'm sure it'll be a cult hit no matter what. Right. So but let, let's talk a little bit about the story, though. What, what, what exactly, um, why, why exactly should uh, individuals listening to this podcast give a, a, a flying car about this, this, <laughs> this film? I think, I think it presents questions about humanity uh, pretty well. Um, I think it asks, um, you know, the, the good question is what does it mean to be human? Um, and sort of what, what are the responsibilities uh, of that um, to one another as well? Uh, the main character, Ryan Gosling, and that's no spoiler because it's given right at the front uh, of a movie, is not is a replicant, is a is not a human being. Um, and no more than 10 minutes into it, uh, you sort of see the disdain that uh, humans have for, I think they call them skin jobs. Yeah, I think there's there's questions of, of morality and of, of love, right? Can, can these machines uh, love? Is that something that that's... Um, is a part of part of their programming? Is that yeah? Like, is that even a, a possibility? Right. Well, Ro- Robin Wright's character, uh, Lieutenant Joshi, who is uh, Ryan Gosling's boss, and and Ryan Gosling's character's name is K, and is later given the name Joseph. So it's Joseph K, which uh, takes you back into Kafka territory, which uh, you know is uh, a universe where you have unknown reasons for whatever is going on. You're, you know, like the trial or the castle. Uh, you have themes of bureaucracy and alienation. So when he uh, is speaking with her, you know, she basically berates him by, by telling him that uh, he has no soul. And so this adds another layer to the story, another texture, where um, when I was watching it, I was reminded of the uh, Sunday morning by Wallace Stevens, uh, the poem where a woman is sitting around uh, wondering, you know, feeling the need for imperishable bliss as she's skipping church on a Sunday morning because she's just enjoying nature. And she is initially berated by Stevens for ignoring the Christian historical element, but then basically he comes down on the side that uh, uh, life is worth living without the need for an imperishable bliss, whereas Blade Runner 2049, in my point of view, and I don't think this is a spoiler, doesn't answer the question and doesn't answer it intentionally. So I I, I think that uh, it it has a, a heavy degree of poetry to it and, and which is why i enjoyed it so much it was like watching a, a a poem unfold but rather than reading it you're you're watching it because you have the visual stimulus you have the story stimulus and then you have your imagination that is layered on top of that or underneath it so i i thought it was a a, a wonderful wonderful film and uh, i i enjoyed the pace in which it it, it played itself out while it's asking all of these questions, because some of these questions for for many individuals cannot be answered. 
and you certainly can't answer them in two hours and 45 minutes, if, if at all. No, I I'd agree with you that, right? Like, within the confines of sort of the movie, uh, it does a good job. Um, sort of like Blade Runner, the original one, also sort of posed these questions, um, mostly through the, I guess, I, I always thought it was Rucker's, Rucker Howard's character. Um, Roy Batty sort of really brought those questions to the fore. Um, where in this one, we get to see... And, and, and I got to say, Miss Rucker Howard in this one. Definitely missed a Rooker Howard character, but um, again, I, I think that uh, Sylvia Hooks as, as Love did a uh, she she was she was an amazing villain. Oh, absolutely, she was absolutely frightening. Uh, I did enjoy I did enjoy Love as a, as a character. Um, yeah, just this determined uh, sort of being uh, following orders is is yeah. I think there's nothing more nothing, nothing scarier than something just following orders. Um, so. Right, right. Well, uh, do you have anything else to add about this uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, it looks like they're rebooting a franchise with this because uh, the the screenwriters Hampton Fancher and Michael Green made a self contained story, but there's also a lot of opportunity to uh, come back with a with a, a sequel or a series of sequels, much like uh, Ridley Scott is doing with the alien franchise. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I heard some rumors of some, uh, some short films being made to put in place in between, uh, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. So I know that I think they are working on some stuff, uh, to sort of expand the universe in a way. Um, yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to explore. I'm, I'm a big cyberpunk fan. Uh, so William Goose and stuff. Um, so I, I like this, I like the noir, uh, sort of gritty technological bleak future, uh, sort of landscape. So this is this this hit this hit a lot of good points uh, for me. I think it's, I think it was just a little bit a tad too bit long for me uh, for for a poem. Again, I, I thought that the the film itself is just extremely compelling, and I I, I had no issue whatsoever with with the timing. And I, I think it's it's wonderful that uh, you, we we have intelligent science fiction made that doesn't feature men and women in tights, you know, running around, you know, doing Rocco Sacco with robots and uh, big monsters from outer space and things like that. It's, it's, it's really nice to actually have science fiction deal with what Theodore Sturgeon used to call the philosophy of what if, that all science fiction, all good science fiction is based on what if and answering that question to to some extent or at least posing the question in, in a philosophical fashion no i think i think the movies of this type definitely have their place and i wish there were more i feel like more of them are on television uh, of one sort or another westworld or, or whatnot being the one that kind of comes to mind yeah and, and before we close out too I, i'd also like to say that the, the great roger deakins who is one of the, the most amazing cinematographers ever uh, did the cinematography on this, and so this is just a, a smorgasbord of visual delight, uh, and it bears repeated watching. I, I know that you you could probably think of better things to do with two hours and forty five minutes, but uh, I I know that I was absolutely spellbound by the cinematography, and uh, the, the special effects team did uh, a wonderful job. The set design, the production design, all just kind of played into what I, I thought was just a, a feast for the eyes and for the imagination and for the for the soul. Okay. Well, listen, Daniel, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you about Blade Runner 2049, and um, 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Upstream. Until then, have a great week. And that brings us to the close of another edition of Radio Free Acton. Lots of people to thank today. First of all, our guest, Daniel J. Mahoney of Assumption College. Thanks for joining us to talk about the Bolshevik Revolution. Thanks to John Caritas, our Director of Communications here at the Acton Institute, uh, for joining us to uh, do that interview. And of course, thanks to Bruce Edward Walker. He's always great uh, on his upstream segments. Uh, Daniel Menjivar, our editor this week, and uh, also joining Bruce. Thanks, Daniel. And Carolyn Roberts is our producer this week on Radio Free Acton. Uh, if you've got any questions for Acton uh, people, Acton experts, we'd love to have you send them our way. You can send them to rfa at acton.org. Anything on economics or theology or the intersection of the two, we'd love to open those up and answer them on the air. So please do uh, send us your questions. rfa at acton.org is the address. And, of course, be sure to check out the Acton Institute's website at acton.org and our power blog at blog.acton.org as well. Lots of great content there all the time. Thanks for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. We will talk with you next time. Have a good one, everybody.